directly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com Hello, Nerdlings, and welcome to episode 49 of the Grip Dark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, we're a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium, using the role-playing systems created by Fantasy Flight Games. Each uh, episode, we go through a different game system, either Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, or Only War. I will jump in at this point and say it's actually been a little bit since we last broadcast. It's been a couple of weeks, yes. a couple of weeks off, unfortunately. Uh, it's just been a mixture of things, mainly uh, a bit of work conflict, a bit of, bit of uh, travel conflict. I actually had pretty much six solid weeks of travel um, yep. that make this a bit difficult. And what's more, uh, my travel has pleased Papa Nurgle so much that he has blessed me, blessed me with the chaos mutation of, uh, of a uh, degenerated spinal disc, not once but twice. Yep. Yeah. Great chaos mutation. It actually gives me a natural agility minus one, which has actually reduced my walking speed to zero at the moment. So, yes. uh, uh, it's but on the plus side you did get a benefit from it as well which is a, a form of drug resistance generated by taking so many that's right yeah <laughs> I now have was it, was it decadent what was it, what was the trait from Dicarosi first edition um, decadent or whatever that yeah. gave, gave you drug resistance yeah Yeah. so anyway but uh, yeah so it's been, it's been a rough run still still more to go looks like I'm looking down the, the barrel of having a bit of surgery but uh, we'll do our best to try and catch up over the next few episodes try and get back on schedule again I don't think next episode, like we planned, was going to be a live episode. I think it's just going to be too much to get organised under the current circumstance. We'll just record it yeah. normal. And yeah, I think, unfortunately, it's going to not be possible. Yeah, we'll save that for something like a 100th episode. Yeah. We'll do something big then, anyway. Uh, anyway, so on to... Well, actually, that's before we talk about tonight's episode. Um, any gaming in the past few weeks? Um, I think that... Was your Mage game before or after the last show we recorded? I think it was after. Okay, all right. So we have, we have played your mage game, yep. um, and which was mostly centered on my character, so yep. good for me. Um, I also ran my Scion game, and I, that, that particular game was the first game I've run from the couch, lying on the couch, while the group was sitting around the table nearby, because I could not sit at the table, thanks to my, uh, my, my injury. So it was still a fun game. I, I'd like to say that game was a, a, a cross between the, the classic Chinese story of the journey to the West... And a courtroom drama. So, uh, but everyone seemed oh, okay. to have fun. Uh, but that's it for gaming, really, for us. I mean, there's been some... A uh, couple of actually new gaming releases, I noticed. Uh, you and I, Mike, used to play many, many years ago a game system called Mutant Chronicles. Yes. Uh, which was a role-playing game adaption of uh, the war As far zone. as I'm concerned, the best way to describe Mutant Chronicles is Rifts in Space. Excellent setting, terrible system. <laughs> that's it. It was, it was created from the miniatures war game Warzone. Yep. I believe it was first created in a different language. I think French. maybe French, yeah. yeah. it was French. And the original rule book read like it had been translated through Google Translate. It was a little bit better than that, but yeah. not much. Uh, the other thing was, it was one of those game systems with a life path character creation system. Yeah. And each sort of faction book they brought out for it had different takes on it. And what you had was, if you used a different faction books, you ended up with very unbalanced characters. You could, yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, once again, very interesting setting, sort of a... Almost a sort of um, noir sitting in space, but also with 
monsters and it, know, a, a chaos style faction as it, well. It was early steampunk. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, but all that being said, they just actually released a third edition now, which has been written by Jay Little, who was the creator behind games like the uh, Edge of the Empire and Age of Rebellion game settings from FFG. Yep. Um, I downloaded it last night. Uh, yep. Paid for it and downloaded it from uh, Drive Through RPG, I'd say. <laughs> And uh, I haven't had much of a chance to look through it yet, but I am keen to see, you know, it is very, very different. Uh, and they have gone once again for that narrative style mechanic similar to what they've done with Star Wars. So, yeah, um, yeah once again, interesting setting. I'd be interested to see how they actually go with that. I might try and do a play test at some point in the future anyway. Yeah. Uh, okay, so on to today's episode. Uh, it is a Black Crusade episode. Originally, when we were playing these, these episodes, you might recall our last Black Crusade episode, which was episode 44 was heavily devoted to um, Zinch. And yes. we used materials almost entirely taken from the Tome of Fate. And originally my plan was to move on to the next book in the line, which came out, which was Tome of Blood, and do an episode all about corn. But then I realised this is episode 49. You know, you can't not do an episode about Nurgle on episode 49. You know, it's yeah. 7 times 7, it's a you know, powerful number for Nurgle. So we've switched it all around, and this is, a, this is a, an all-Nurgle show, yep. you know, in line with my Nurgle mutations. Uh, so... We're going to do a regular news section first off. Uh, we're going to talk about the system established in the Tome of Decay for the Black Crusade, running running and playing the Black Crusade. Yep. Uh, we're going to talk about the Writhing World Sorcerer King. Yep. Uh, we'll do our regular plot hooks and war gear section. Uh, then we're going to do, finally, a review of Forbidden Stars. And uh, then we're going to talk a bit about the nature of Nurgle uh, before we do our regular community section and, and close out the show. So... Could be a bit of a long one today. We've got some community feedback to talk about, a bit of a big system to discuss, but uh, shall we get straight into it? Yes. Let's do it. Command knowledge, accessing Imperial archives. So onto the news. Um, not a lot on the role-playing settings from uh, from FFG at the moment. I will say... Well, in, so go ahead. That, that said, um, Enemies Without is now listed as on the boat. On the boat, okay. Yep, yes, so that, that's heading back to their warehouse. So it's Q, printed, Q, it's finished, it's ready to start getting distributed very soon. Yeah, Q4 is the, is the internet release date. Yep. I will say that I noticed there was an update from Dice Labs, who did the uh, the character, character sheet tool for iOS and Android. Yeah. So they've just basically announced that they are their next patch is called Multiplayer. It will allow you to basically link your systems and do things like dice rolls um, w- within a sort of a shared group cloud as such. So you could actually use the the sheets for live gameplay as well with a, with a GM sort of running a, a room with all the various characters. Yeah. Um, there are also some talk or references that the fact that the next project is going to be a Dark Heresy first edition character sheet program. Which mm. is um, before they get to work on stuff from Enemies Without, which is I thought was an odd choice. I thought if they're going to do a different setting, they may as well do one of the ones which is still, you know, current per se. Like you know, go back yep. and start with only war or that sort of thing. But uh, that's what they mentioned on their website. So we'll see. See how that what, goes. What comes out of that exactly. Um, on the FFG side as well, uh, we have seen an announcement of Wrath of the Crusaders, which is the fifth war pack in the Planet Four cycle for Conquest. Yep. Um, seems to be quite heavily uh, Black Templar focused. Um, other than that, pretty much everything on the FFG site right now is focused on Star Wars, which is... Not surprising, uh, considering it was Force Friday just the other day. That's it, yeah. So Force Friday, if you don't know, is the day that the, I guess, the media embargo dropped on all the ancillary products associated with the new Star Wars film. So when, you know, all the various toy companies would start showing off the various action figures and vehicles, that sort of stuff, you know. So uh, I will say that my, my sister actually works in... Uh, in, and I guess marketing and publishing for for toys and such, and she's been heavily involved with the new 
Thunderbirds franchise. Yep. And she went to a big uh, toy fair recently in Australia where all the various toys were being shown to the retailers so they could start planning their purchases for, for Christmas time, basically. And this was pri- prior to Force Friday. And so you had like the Lego stand there and you had all the various other toy brands. And there were two Star Wars stands. There was one Star Wars stand which had all the Star Wars Rebels and all the original stuff there. You can see all the toys coming out this year. And then there was the Force Awakens stand, which was a sealed booth with a, a locked door and an armed security guard who let a very small number of people through to see the toys coming out prior to their announcement at, at uh, Force Friday. So everything's been under heavy lock and key. And now uh, FFG have got some new stuff for the X-Wing Miniatures game. They've got the new TIE yep. Fighters, the new, the new X-Wing. So uh, I, I can assume that yeah, it's, it's a big deal for them right now to have a chance to actually start previewing that, oh, that, that content absolutely. now that it's available to the public. Yeah, they've probably been sitting on it for a little while, not being able to release it as soon as it was ready, yes. which is probably a bit different from their standard model, which is they produce it, they publish it, and they as soon as they get it into their warehouse, pretty much they're sending it out straight away. Exactly, that's right. Uh, I think I noticed from FFG, just on a side note too, was today they've announced they've actually acquired the license for Legend of the Five Rings from the Ultrawake Entertainment Group. Yeah, yeah. So Legend of the Five Rings, if you're not familiar, is a, a, a fantasy setting... Very much based on feudal Japan uh, yep. in, a, in a fantasy world called Rokugan, uh, where you've got these various factions or clans. It, it was primarily based on a collectible card game, yep. um, and then it also grew into a role-playing game from there. And tabletop war game. And a tabletop war game. Is it really? Yeah. I never, I never saw that. Okay. It, it's terrible. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll, but, be, I'll be honest, it's a, it's a pretty terrible tabletop war game. The card game's good. Yeah. yeah. I, I always thought that, like, you know, L5R was really the staple of AEG's product line, so I don't know what's happening to AEG if they've sold that off. But uh, anyway, so they've said that the current season of the CCG will be the last. Yeah. Uh, that, that will be the end of that sort of story. And uh, what uh, FFG are going to do is bring out an LCG, which is more their style, a uh, living card game of, of uh, L5R sometime around Gen Con Indy 2017, they've said. Yeah. So I'm interested to see how that translates because, I mean, one of the sort of the features of L5R with, it was with AEG was that each Gen Con, you'd have these big tournaments and the, there was an ongoing storyline. Each yeah. sort of season of the game brought out a new story and the events at the Gen Con tournaments allowed the players to have an effect upon what the storyline was going to be for the coming year as well. So yeah. uh, there was a big part of sort of, I guess, fan interaction with the development of the game. There, I'll be interested if they sort of keep that in some way going. I'd like to see them do that. Yeah. Whether they do, who knows? I yeah. mean, 2017 is a long way off yet. Yep. But I think with a living card game as well, I think that it will definitely bode well for that sort of style as well because then anyone who collects and plays has an equal footing chance of getting involved in that. Well, that's it. There was always a question as to whether living card games would be successful in tournaments. And, yep. and, and the answer is yes, they've been hugely successful. Just yep. looking at how well things like... I mean, they're not card games, but even games like X-Wing are affected the same well, sort of concept. The, you... the way I always look at it is, imagine if you went to a, a chess grandmaster tournament and one of the chess players pulled out a, you know, a golden knight and they said, this is like a normal knight, except it can also do all the moves of a queen. <laughs> who do you think is going to win that match yeah that's true I mean making it a living card game I always felt made it more tactics driven more knowledge of how to play the game and what yeah it's, it's, it's deck building that's the thing yeah, as well exactly definitely. right 
And uh, they have said they are going to do also a role-playing product down the line as well. So, Mike, you're never a huge fan of Elfheimer, is that right? Or um, Yeah, the, the, the setting, because it's sort of pseudo-Japan, it's not enough Japanese and not enough Western. It's sort of halfway in between. Okay. And that always sort of bothered me a little bit. Um, but that could also be because the D&D L5R was... Oh, the Orient Adventures. Yeah, that was yeah. a while ago. Yeah, no, I, I actually used to like L5R. But mainly the uh, I, I I played the card game a bit, but I stopped playing the card game after I got into a fist fight over a game. You yeah, know? and not instigated by me, instigated by the other person because I kept winning in different ways. Yeah. But in any way, um, the uh, uh, the role playing game I quite liked, except that the first edition had a definite power cap. You know, I've, I've never liked leveling systems because eventually you hit the maximum level, and that's as far as you can progress. And it was quite short. In the first edition, but some yeah, of the editions came out quite Five well. levels, wasn't it? Basically, yeah. If you if yeah. you're a samurai, basically you had five levels of progression and such. And they, they fix that in future ones. But I'm going to see what FFG do with it if they do a role playing game in the future. But this is still a way away, and nothing to do with 40k. Yeah. All right, so let's keep moving. Um, Games Workshop. Most of their stuff has still been focused on the fantasy releases. Like yeah, yeah. Although the... they're building very heavily towards the new release of. Um, the Tower Book. Yes, so but we have seen some new figures from both Necrons and Mechanic, uh, Adeptus Mechanicus. Yep, yep. They've um, for Forge World they had a, a beautiful model of the Norden Artus. Yes, for the uh, Horus Heresy game, which looks fantastic and is appropriately powerful. Apparently, excellent. Um, yeah. I mean, just on, on other sort of Games Workshop stuff, I'll say that uh, Regicide saw its official release this week on Steam, so the full game, including the full campaign, is now released. Yeah. Um, I have got my copy. I, I also, this week, caught up with um, uh, Catherine, the project lead from Hammerhead Studios as well. Hammer Falls Studios, sorry. And uh, uh, we're going to get them, we're going to get her and Ross Watson back on the show again soon to talk about the game now that it is fully released as well. Now they're allowed to talk about everything? Exactly right. Yes. Also... You sent me this week, and I'm going to put it on my website, the first gameplay footage, alpha footage from Battlefleet Gothic. Which looks fantastic. That's it. I, I, I wept internally when I saw that. That was like, you know, I was like, oh, how, can I, how can I throw my money at this? This is fantastic. This yeah, looks great. It looks absolutely brilliant. Um, just this, uh, some of the stuff they had there, like the fact that damage is compartmentalized, so you can see ships where little parts of the ships are on fire, that sort of stuff, and different abilities of the ships yeah. are affected. You, with. Can, you can use ruined ships as cover against... Missile torpedoes or fire from the enemies. It's gas clouds, nebulas. Yeah, there's the whole thing. You can hide ships. You need to use sensor probes to pick up ships. And everything as well. It's just the, the the whole. It looks so beautiful. It's it's. I'm so looking forward to this game. The most amazing thing is that's just alpha footage. So they're going to polish that up even more. It's going to look fantastic. Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit of. Um, is it Homeworld? Was the yes. um, yeah? That's it. Uh, and it is it is very close quarters. Like you see, sort of ships flying alongside each other, broadsiding, which is not really what happens in the setting. It's much longer distances. But I think that for the purpose of a computer game, it, it, it has to be this way. It, would be, it, it, it has it, to be it, this way. Yeah, it, it would be boring to be broadsiding a blip that is thirty thousand kilometers away. You know. Well, yeah, I mean, they've made the ships larger. It's more like the board game where the models are representative of what you've actually got there. Yeah, and that's fine. So yeah, so definitely that and um, Inquisitor Martyr um, are the two big games of next year. I'm, I'm waiting for 40k. Looking forward to both of those. So yeah, uh, but no, still no gameplay footage from Inquisitor yet. So but yeah, Battlefield Gothic looks fantastic. So Battlefield Gothic Armada is yeah. the actual title of it. Um, all right, so onto Eternal Crusade. They have announced Founders Early Access. So that will begin 
Um, as we're recording this Monday, September 14th, they will start allowing founders in, in waves, uh, a few hundred at a time, in to start playing the game. So uh, I, I'm a founder. I don't know when I will get my access, but uh, I don't know what I'll be able to say when the time comes. But uh, yeah, looking forward to actually getting our hands now on, on Eternal Crusade and seeing what's going on. Yep. Not really much else in the sort of news there, just that it's bang, they're ready to go. Excited to check that out. So that's it for the news side. Let's uh, get into the meat of our show. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. Okay, so let's start talking some system for Black Crusade. And if you cast your mind back through the annals of history to early 2014, uh, back to our 14th episode, we actually had a whole segment on the Black Crusade where we gave you basically our take on how you would run this as part of your campaign. Yeah. This is before the release of the Time of Decay. Yep. where there's actually now a, a codified system for how to actually present it. So, you know, ignore all our advice from, from back, back from episode 14 and instead listen to our run-through of the, the FFG official system for the Black Crusade and then we'll give you some, some thoughts on it at the end itself. Um, okay, so there's a few things you need to know about the, the Black Crusade itself. First off, it has to be dedicated. Now, normally, if you've got a single Warmaster and that Warmaster isn't aligned... It has to be dedicated to that War Master's God. Uh, if you have a group of people in the Black Crusade, then you go on the majority. So if, you know, if more of them worship, you know, corn than any others, and you have you have it as corn, if it is a complete split or the War Master is unaligned, you can actually have an unaligned Black Crusade. Yeah. Uh, which is odd because there are specific rules for each of the Chaos Gods, but no specific rules for unaligned as such. I mean, that being said, each Chaos God gives you a, a benefit and a drawback. Yeah. So I guess having nothing is sort of the equivalent of that, although there, there's no there's no guidelines established of what the minimum requirements are to form a crusade under Chaos Undivided as such. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the other thing is that for a single person to come out on top and be clearly identified as the War Master, there is the recommendation that they be at least 15 infamy points ahead of other potentials. Yeah. So you think that, that works, Mike? I mean, if, you, if you've got a group and you've got a group of people that are playing together, does it work for you to basically establish this person is the one that is, you know, first among equals as such, or...? Yes, because it needs a leader. Chaos isn't a democracy. Yeah. Um, it, you need to have a leader, and 15 points is fairly substantial, and it could well end up that you're ready to launch a Black Crusade, but there's no one who's 15 points ahead of anyone else. So there's going to be a, you know, a couple of little minor missions where they're all going out and scrabbling for power as much as they can to be considered the leader. Um, but yeah, yeah. You, you do need a leader. I mean, it does say that the, the War Master, in terms of a player character group, is much like the Anointed in a regular compact. You know, they yeah. are, once again, first among equals. The whole group itself is involved in running the Black Crusade. They are just the key force behind which everything rallies as well. They're the figurehead. That's right, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it does sort of say, there's no rules for it, it does say, but if, if you somehow end up with a Black Crusade dedicated to a god other than yours and you're sort of leading it, there can be some repercussions for you from your own god as well. Yes. Okay, so when you actually dedicate it, uh, there are a few different rules. So first off, they, what, what, what this defines is a benefit, a drawback, and a requirement to actually start the Black Crusade. So if you want to go corner-lined, which is called the Tide of Blood, um, you must have at least six hosts at your command and three landing fleets. And we'll come back to what hosts and fleets are in a bit of time as well. Uh, the benefit you get is that you reduce the uh, defender strength by an additional 10 
after you resolve your opposed uh, value combat test, which will come to as well. Uh, the drawback is that whenever a uh, one of your lieutenants or, um, or one of your followers turns traitor on you, that you lose an additional host at the same time. Yep. All right, so moving on to Slanesh, which is the campaign of subversion. So you must have at least three cults established in Imperial space and have some asset of rapid deployment. Okay, so this can be landing fleet. It could be access to World Eldar Webway. You know, some sort of other other methodology that the GM accepts is a unusual form of quickly deploying troops to various locations. Yeah. Uh, the benefit of being Slanesh is that you gain plus 10 on all attempts to corrupt territories, um, but you lose an additional host when you roll doubles on the opposed combat value test. So yeah. you, basically, they, they just lose focus and they're slightly more easily defeated in that respect. Okay, on to Zinch, uh, which is the advance of the inevitable. Um, you must command at least one cabal, which cannot be assigned to the actual conflict. They are basically there dividing Zinch's will, trying to work out what it is Zinch wants you to do next in the crusade. So they just need to be there just to do that. And you also have to have at least three fleets. Um, the benefits of being Zinch are that you gain plus 20 on any single test on a single territory during your your campaign turn. The drawback is that the GM gets to assign, if you use that, gets to assign a minus 10 on any test in any territory during your turn as well. So yeah. it's just the, the whims of chaos, basically. So, you know, Zinch didn't want you to take that planet, you know, whatever it might be. Okay, and on to Nurgle, which is the uh, Triumph of Decay. Uh, now, you must command at least three fleets and have some methodology of corrupting Imperial supply lines. So, you know, a, an Imperial a cult in the Imperium, you know, access to Plague Cauldron, something something that's going to give you the ability to actually affect their, their supply lines. Yeah. Um, benefit being that uh, enemies suffer minus one on their reinforcement tests. Uh, but the, the drawback being that you get minus 10 on your opposed combat value test for the first turn in each uh, territory that you invade. Basically, the whole concept is that because they rely on things like plague and disease to help them, when those things aren't yet fully established, it's not going to give you that, that full benefit as such. It's slow startup. Slow startup, exactly right. So, I mean, out of those four, Mike, do you think any of those particularly stand out for you? They all balance out in the end. The main thing is you've got to consider what the requirements are to dedicate to the particular gods. And fleets are probably a bit harder to get hold of than some of the other things. Yeah. So getting hold of a collection collection of ships is probably going to be one of the main challenges because they all require some form of of ships, really. Yeah, that's it. Oh, well, let's talk about okay, let's come out there. how you actually gather your forces. The intent is that over the course of your campaign play, you will have established some amount of forces. Yes. Probably it's unlikely you've got a fleet, because a fleet really has to be more than one ship yep. to be a fleet. It could be a very big ship, I suppose, could be a, a fleet. Yeah. You know, if you've suddenly got... A, a single battleship could be considered a fleet yeah. when you're going up against a bunch of cruisers or escort frigates. Exactly right. But you, know, but you may have acquired some hosts. You may have acquired some... I mean, for example, minions. If you've got a greater or, or superior minion of, of Chaos... They automatically become a lieutenant for the purposes of the Black Crusade. Yeah, um, you know, you may have acquired a cult. You may have basically any any imperial world that you've had activities on. The GM can say, okay, well, I'm happy to say that you have established a cult on that imperial world, for example. So there are plenty of ways to get it through play, but invariably you won't have enough to meet the requirements at the start of the Black Crusade. So you need to get some other ways yourself. So first off, 
fleets and landing fleets. You know, uh, the you're gonna, you're gonna need those because you need those to move your troops. You can only, you can move three hosts per fleet, and attaining a fleet requires you to burn four infamy, and make a minus thirty infamy test to actually acquire the fleet. And you make the minus thirty at the new infamy value. Yeah. If you fail, you can try again, but each time you're gonna burn four more infamy. So you know you could get a run infamy down to get those fleets. Um, hosts require burning two infamy and making a minus 10 infamy, um, infamy test once again at the new value. Uh, and once again, hosts require fleets to be able to actually move around. Uh, cults require spending uh, burning three infamy and making a minus 20 test. Now, cults can move independently of ships. The idea is they, they just utilize whatever imperial infrastructure exists to get around from place to place. They don't need you, you, they don't access to ships as such. And having a cult on a planet inflicts a minus 10 penalty on the opposed conflict value test for the enemy and also uh, adds plus 10 to your corruption tests on the territories where they're deployed. Yeah. Uh, cabals require burning four infamy and making a 30 minus an infamy test to actually obtain. Uh, once again, they move independently, usually through things like magic. You know, they, they open you know, portals for the warp as such. Uh, and having a cabal in a territory allows you to re-roll any single tests in that territory. Um, finally, lieutenants um, cost you five infamy um, and require making a minus 40 infamy test. Um, and lieutenants have a big effect, which we'll talk about in a bit. So as you can see, it takes quite a lot to to, to put together your host as such. I mean, let's, let's go back to the easy one to do, corn, for example. So corn says you must have six hosts and three minimum three fleets so each fleet costs four each host costs three so that's 18 plus 12 so that's 30 infamy points you have to burn and a crap load of rolls you have to succeed just to obtain enough forces to launch a black crusade unless you've corn. done missions unless you've done stuff to actually get missions in the past to get a host together to build a fleet to do all this stuff that's that's the thing these rolls and burning of infamy is stuff to do if you don't have enough stuff already exactly right so you know really the, the previous missions where you've been going around picking up your infamy to get to the stage to launch a Black Crusade should also be spent building up your tropes. Yeah. Which is something we in our Black Crusade game have not done. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm just we, I think we've got two cults and that's it. Yeah, looking at our own Black Crusade game, we've probably got a couple of cults. I think that our, our corn-based character, we could be argued, has a has a host because they've got an, yeah, a, yeah, that's a true. trader imperial guard regiment. Yep. You know, it could be argued that a, a, the ship may be big enough to represent at least one fleet or landing fleet, maybe, you know. But, yeah, we are a long way away from... And, and we're, we're quite close to the high end of the game as such. You know, we've got Infamy now scores in the oh. 80s and 90s. We're so. close to that end in the Infamy, but not in experience. Exactly right, yes. Yep. So, but yeah, we still, we'd still we have to... The next phase in our character will probably be starting to gather these forces through, through gameplay as such. Yep. Okay, so you've got all your forces together. Now it comes time to actually prepare for the crusade itself. And this is done by both the players and the GM. First thing the players need to do is decide where are they actually going? You know, it, it's always going to say, we're going to go and burn the halls of terror. But it's not going to be a single, it's not going to be a single black crusade. It's going to go all the way from the eye of terror to, to earth and wipe it out. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be bits at a time, basically. Well, so you're focusing on... C- considering you're starting from the screaming vortex, it's an even longer. Right? That's right, yes. Uh, any case, you are, you, you need to focus on a single sector at a time or a single sort of group of systems as such well well that's it i mean that's realistic that the gothic war was a black crusade and the entire you know he attacked one sector yeah the, the gothic, gothic sector, sector. That's, it. And that's it so you know black crusades generally are not to go all the way through to the 
you know to terror yeah if they if they go model of sexes you could be argued each one is its own separate black crusade just sort of yeah. stopping and restarting at the end of each yeah. one technically Angron did a black crusade where they attacked Armageddon yes and that was attacking a system <laughs> uh, which you can do as well you know you, yeah. you, you decide the scope of it now it does have in the book three examples you know it says okay here's what you want to do the Coronas Expanse here's what you want to do the Calixus Sector here's if you want to do the um, Jericho Reach and uh, it gives you an example in the book of, okay, so here are some ideas of territories in each of those settings and such. So, okay, Clixus Sector, Scintilla, the capital's got to be the biggest part of it, you know, but you've also got um, Sakaris, the, the home world of the Stormwarns, for example, you know, th- these are major places and such. Uh, you know, within the Crohn's Expanse, you've got things like um, the Moor or, you know, or, or Footfall. These are major locations you, you would need to capture. So the GM needs to at this point basically sit down and, Design a crusade map. Yeah. So okay. So these are all the te- these are what I think are significant territories, and a territory may be a group of planets. It may not just be a single planet. It could be a group of systems. Could be a subsector. Yeah. That, that make up a you know a, a single valuable chain as such. Like you know this group of three forge worlds are uh, worthwhile being their own territory, and the GM then has to assign a defender strength to each of those locations. Now there are some examples of defender strengths in the book. So for example, the homeworld of the uh, uh, the Stormborn is a strength of 100 you know Scintilla is a strength 80 uh, but there's no actual chart which says this is like this is the size this is the strength you should do all you can really do is look at the examples of that's in the book and say this is roughly what I think each of these territories needs to be yeah um, so it's, it's probably going to be a little bit sort of guesswork initially um, also in the purpose while you're doing up your, um, your, your crusade map you also need to work out what the warp routes are you know how do you get from each place to each place and the general idea is that every single territory should be joined to at least two more. Um, so, you know, you may, if you say you're doing click sector, you may pull out your Dark Heresy first edition book, open up the front cover and use the the map there as your sort of your, your guideline, you know, photocopy it, draw out, sketch out some some borders to make up your territories and you've got the warp routes already shown, you know, or you may do something else from scratch. There should also be some warp routes that go off the, off the board as such yep. because reinforcements need to arrive from somewhere. So you've got to have some more bits that actually go away. So I think this is probably going to be the hardest step of building the back crusade as such. It's this gem part to actually put together the crusade map because it's got to be something which is challenging, you know, enough for the players to have a chance to lose, but also, you know, fair enough to be fun. You know, it's no, it's no point in putting together 15 territories all with Defender Strength 100 and expecting a player characters to get more than more than a couple of spaces in before their yeah. crusade is wiped out. Well, you know, that's if you want a black crusade against terror. Yeah, that's it, yes. Uh, so this is, this is going to be where you sort of the learning curve is going to come from is putting together your, your actual Black Crusade map here so once it's mapped out you're ready to actually you know begin the Black Crusade the players have to determine what is our actual goal you know so the Black Crusade isn't necessary to conquer space it could be that there is an artifact on a planet deep in Imperial space and we need to get that artifact so we've got to fight our way to that place just to claim or corrupt that artifact or location well, yeah. uh, going back to a bad in the game, he did an entire Black Crusade just to get his sword. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, the, the fall of the Cadian Gate could be argued that you know Cadia was the, you know, the, the objective for that as such. Um, but you know, it, or it could be literally we want to conquer this entire sector. You know, conquer or subvert, corrupt this entire sector of space. The player carries need to decide upon what the sort of scope of campaign they're going for, and then the GM needs to decide how long the Black Crusade can last for, and it's generally 
depending on they should take cues from how simple or how complex the goal of the group is because you know, the, the goal will be communicated to the various peons. You know, the, the, the peons know that we are just going to claim this one planet or they know we are going to claim the entire sector of space. Yeah. And that will sort of set their expectations somewhat. So the GM will say, okay, this is the maximum number of crusade turns before the crusade is going to go, we're not making enough headway, everyone's going to disperse. And the recommendation here is that you do the number of territories you assign times between one and four. So, uh, you know, a, a short campaign would be four to five territories. You know, massive campaigns would be something like 25 territories plus. And, you know, if you want to have a massive campaign that is long reaching, you can say, okay, 25 times four is 100 campaign turns. This is going to be a huge thing. We're going to be doing this for several sessions. You know, you may want to do it that way or you may want to do it nice and short. Five territories just to get from A to B to collect this item. Okay, we'll just say five campaign turns. Can you do it or not? Simple as that. Yeah. All right, so then the actual the crusade begins and you start going into crusade turns. So each turn is breaking down a number of steps. First off, the, the Chaos Forces deploy. So effectively, uh, fleets, cults, cabals, um, and, and any unengaged hosts are moved basically along a single warp route to a territory or, or new location. You do have the option of moving some of these forces multiple warp routes, so you can actually go two steps. When you do that, you roll a d10, and if you roll equal to or under the number of total forces making the extra step, you lose one of those fleets in the process. And if that fleet had three hosts on board, those hosts are gone as well. You know, yeah. So you've got to work out exactly which fleet each host is assigned to as such as well. Yeah, they're certainly at risk. Definitely. So normally it would be a relatively slow progress. Once you move everybody, you then assign leadership. So you've got your various lieutenants, and you can assign one lieutenant to any one contested territory. You can assign as many lieutenants as you want, but only one per contested territory. Uh, and you can also choose to keep some lieutenants in in reserve as such. They just basically stay with the Warmaster. They may affect some other events down the track with key events or that sort of thing as well. Then you resolve naval conflicts. So any anywhere that any territory that has a defensive strength of 50 or more also has a blockade strength. Right? And the blockade strength is equal to half the base defensive strength. So if you had a, say, 80, 80 defensive strength um, place like Scintilla, uh, it's going to have a blockade strength of 40. And you make an opposed test. So you, the, the GM is basically rolling the, the blockade strength of the, uh, of, the, of the location. The Chaos player is rolling a value equal to 20 times the number of fleets they have on the location plus 10 times the number of landing fleets they have. The landing fleets are less effective in actual naval combat. Yeah. And uh, if you win that role, if the Chaos player wins... They reduce the blockade strength by five per degree of success rolled on that roll. Right? If they fail, every three degrees of failure will result in the loss of one of their fleets involved in the, in the conflict. And if they roll a double, regardless of whether it's successful or fail, they also lose a fleet. You know, it's just because it's, it's war. You're going to lose some forces and such. Uh, and, and that will basically resolve that, that turn of the naval conflict. Next, you move on to resolving your ground conflicts. You do this once for every single territory where you have forces and the defender strength is above zero, basically. Um, so you, uh, it, it works in a similar respect to the, um, uh, the naval conflict. If, if there is no lieutenant leading the group, you make your roll. You get 20 times the number of hosts to your roll versus their defender strength. And same way, way it works. Steve is five damage to the defender strength for each degree of success. If you fail, every three degrees of failure, it's one host lost. 
doubles those hosts as well. It's all the same. However, if you've actually assigned a lieutenant to the uh, to the conflict, then you add plus 10 to your post-conflict value for the lieutenant, and you do 10 times the degree of success and damage, not 5. So the lieutenants will help you basically take places a lot, lot faster. Yeah. Because Chaos Forces that are unled are pretty chaotic. Yes. <laughs> They're just raiders. Exactly right. Yeah, they have no real understanding of tactics other than rape, pillage, take slaves. That's it. Um, it's also worth noting that if there was a naval conflict in the in the sector as well, then the side that wins naval conflict gets 10 additional on their opposed test on the ground. Yeah. Because they obviously have support from yeah, orbital support. bombardment, etc. Orbital bombardments. Yeah. Now, at this point in time, the player carries get to take actions as well. These are called key events. So... Each PC in the group can do one of these. First off, they can basically reduce the blockade strength by five in a location or the ground defender strength by ten. Basically, they just go there and they just help the naval conflict, help on the ground. They just kill people, destroy stuff, basically. Yep. Um, they can make a corruption test using their own corruption value to corrupt a territory. We'll come back to corruption shortly. Um they may basically draw an additional host, so basically rally a host from the from the fallen forces, basically on a location, or gain plus two plunder points from the, from a uh, from a defeated location, um, or they can remove the discontent state from a lieutenant, which yep. we'll come back to in a moment. So they're the, they're the basic the player actions. Once every single conflict's been resolved and every player has taken a key action, you move on to the next step, which is corrupting territories. So this is the point where the chaos forces, whether they've won the battle or not are already starting to try and subvert the world that they're now on. Yeah. So you make a, a, a corruption test for every single territory where there is your forces, basically. So if there are still um, enemy forces on the planet, it's a minus 60 corruption test using the corruption of the Warmaster. And um, uh, if it succeeds uh, and the planet becomes corrupted, then all future strength losses on that planet are increased by 10. Yeah. Uh, if the planet has already been defeated, like, i.e. there are no defenders there at all, then it's a minus 30 corruption test to corrupt it. Why would you corrupt it? Be- you know, because there's no more forces to defeat? Well, because you can get reinforcements still appearing on corrupted worlds. Yeah. Um, Plus the fact that you're chaos, and that is your entire point, to yes, corrupt worlds exactly of right. the Imperium. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. Um, so any time a corrupted territory gets reinforced... Um, they can the reinforcements if there's no more defending forces. Say you've already moved on, they can try and uncorrupt the world. They burn the corruption out, whatever it might be. Um, they get to roll a d10. If they roll under the number of turns that the sorry, sorry over the number of turns that the, it's already been corrupted for, then yeah. So it's only been a short, only been corrupted for one turn. They only have to roll two or above on a d10, and they manage to clear cleanse the planet. But after two after too long, it becomes impossible to cleanse. Basically, yeah. It becomes exterminatus, but... Exactly right. Okay, so once you've done your corruption, you now have to assess your crusade strength. So first off, um, corrupted territories generate two plunder per turn. Right? And these plunder points can be used to actually purchase new units, new fleets, new lieutenants, new hosts, you know, to bolster your forces, basically. You are effectively raising groups from the ashes, effectively, to, to fight alongside yeah, you. You're finding the, the, the malcontents of the planet who are already there contacting with cults which may have already been operating and getting them to actually start working for you. Exactly. Now, you have to actually track which planet the plunder came from because you, when you, when you spend plunder to, to actually raise a force, it appears at the planet 
that it's actually raised from. So uh, you only get two points per turn. It may require, say, four points to raise something. So you may have to actually track that. Okay, I've got two points here I haven't spent yet. The next turn, it's still coming up again. Two more. Now I will raise my oh, force here as well. That's it. So you've got to basically, on the, on the Crusade map, track how much plunder is currently associated with each individual each individual location. I'm not sure what you do if... Say, for example, you had a location that you moved on from. You've, you've got, say, six plunder saved up there. Suddenly reinforcements appear and they, they, they cleanse the planet. Would you remove the, the plunder from that planet? Um, whoa, that's a tough one. Uh, probably, yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. It's not coming in the book. I just thought I'd ask a question. Yeah, I, I'd say you probably would. I'd say... you. I wouldn't remove it as such. I'd say it's there, but you can't access it until you re-corrupt the planet. Okay, makes that, sense. That, that would be my ruling on it. Yep. But maybe you lose half of it, or you lose a couple of points of it. Yep. Alright, so the next thing is that you have to work out which of your lieutenants turn traitor. <laughs> because, at the end of the day, chaos is fickle. Uh, and and funny enough, it actually goes in which lieutenants are the most successful. So any lieutenant who succeeded in their role by four degrees of success or more become discontent. They're basically, I'm so powerful, why do I need to keep following this guy? I could, I could lead this myself. Yeah. And you have to roll a, um, a D10 for each discontent lieutenant. On a nine, they abandon the crusade. And they take half the hosts that are currently with them with, as, when they go, rounding up as well. So they can actually take a, a severe number of forces with them when they go. So you know, it's in your best interest not to have discontent uh, lieutenants. Yep. There are a few ways to basically prevent that. One, we mentioned before, it's a key event. You can turn a discontent lieutenant content again. Secondly, you can spend one plunder point from the same location that the lieutenant is on or from any location which is adjacent by a warp route. Yep. Effectively, you just keep... You, know, you bribe them. You bribe them. You know, have, have some wealth to stick, keep fighting with you and such that they return back to a, to a content state as well. Yeah. Okay, next up, you have to work out whether there are enemy reinforcements. So... The GM rolls for each individual territory, whether it's been conquered or corrupted or not, to see if there is enemy reinforcements arrive. You can get to the point on the chart where reinforcements arrive and becomes impossible. Basically, if the planet is corrupted and it's adjacent to other corrupted territories and not adjacent to the edge of the board, you basically cannot get reinforcements back there. But anywhere else, you know, there is a chance that reinforcements will appear. Anytime reinforcements appear, you increase the defender strength of that planet or that territory by D10. Yeah. So it's not a huge amount, but you know, if you've well, already moved your crusade fleet on, that that does also increase its blockade strength if it's high enough to have a blockade strength as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, um, you know, it can be annoying where you've you, you, you've moved six territories through the board, conquering as you go, and suddenly one of them just suddenly has two strength appear. You know, do you then send? And, and because, do you divert and, and, anything back, or do you just hope that they don't can't uncorrupt? Yeah, and because they've got forces there, that means there's a high chance of being reinforced in the future as well. So, and there's also a chance now of reinforcements to other adjacent adjacent sectors. Exactly right. Yes, as well. Yeah. So, um, and at the end of all that, if you want, there is an optional chart for map events. You can roll in each turn to see unusual stuff happens. I, I wouldn't do it every turn. You know, maybe as a as a GM, I'd say, you know, I'd work out the total number of turns I'm doing and I'd maybe do it, like, somewhere, like, partway through and then towards the end. Like, say I'm doing a 10-turn crusade, I might go, okay, it turns three and seven, I'm going to roll on the map events chart because there are some pretty extreme events there. Like, you know, a living saint appears and now, you know, is, is in conflict with the forces. All enemy forces are bolstered by, the, by their presence, but if they're defeated, then all enemy forces lose substantially, substantial morale, you know. So, yeah. Um, so, you've read through the system. We haven't actually played it in a game yet, but you know, hopefully we'll soon in our own game. What are your overall thoughts of this as a system? 
as a system, it's good. But I, I want to point out something very clearly. When players are doing key events, yes. I really do think they should be role-played out. Yeah, that's going to be my point exactly. Is yeah. that If you just follow these rules as written, you could run an entire Black Crusade in a session. Yeah. You know, we, we, could be, we could be playing for years, getting our characters built up to the point they're now ready for the Black Crusade. And then we go, okay, now I'm going to conquer the Clixus Sector. And over the space of a five-hour session, we do a lot of dice rolling, no actual gameplay, no role-playing, and at the end, we've got a result. Yeah. And that, for me, feels a little anticlimactic. You know, you want to try and get as much... As much play out of it as much as Exactly right. In fact, if, if I was going to run the Black Crusade like this, what I'd probably do is say, okay, here's what we're going to do each session. At the start of the session... We, do we, the we, we resolve one turn, right? And then we're going to role play what the characters do, you know, at this point in the crusade. Yep. The, the rest of the day session will just be, okay, you know, reports coming in. This is what's going on. Here are some rumors that you found out. Things that your characters might want to investigate directly, you know, like, oh, we found rumors that there might be a, an imperial shrine that requires direct interaction by skilled characters we need to deal with in this planet as well. You know, something that just yep. keeps the players actively playing their characters, not just rolling on a miniatures war game with no miniatures, basically. Yeah. I mean, overall, I really like the system, but it's got to be in support of uh, of, of role-playing opportunities. You know, Absolutely. so... I feel also that there's something missing here as well, which yes. is the fact that it talks a lot about lieutenants betraying the characters and all this stuff. What happens when one character decides to betray another character? Yeah. The, the leader of the host is... The Cornate Berserker, who's been, you know, riding roughshod over the rest of the group for the whole thing. They're running it now. And during the play of the Crusade, one of the other characters goes, you know what? I've had enough of that. Yeah. You know, how are you going to really deal with that level of conflict? Because at that sort of stage, there's not not really any coming back from that. Yeah. Betraying during the Black Crusade is a bit different from shooting someone in the back during a normal session. I mean, you can basically make the, the argument that the moment the Warmaster dies, the Black Crusade is over. Is over. That's yeah. it. And even if even if the Warmaster is going to come back because they have a high infamy, I think that you know it's still the war. Yeah, the Crusades lost its momentum. Lost such. its momentum. It's over. Yeah. yeah. So, and this is going to come back to what I talk a little bit in about our um, our plot hooks for the day. But you know, certainly, you know, they, they, a Black Crusade can be many times can be stopped from within. Oh, yeah, definitely. So yeah, but it's I guess it's up to the gym at the time the level of betrayal and yeah you know, and, and how it's dealt with as such. Yeah. So and, and at the end of the day, you know, if you if you had a, a mostly successful Black Crusade going on and one of the players decides that, well I'm not happy with me not getting enough kudos for this and they kill the, the, the Warmaster and the Black Crusade ends, there's gonna be a lot of pissed off Chaos worshippers and potentially even Chaos gods who were really looking forward to this outcome, who suddenly go, oh, well... It, it, it depends. I mean... Depends on which it, god it is, I guess, yeah. It, yeah, exactly. If the Cornate Berserker who's leading the Black Crusade gets killed by the, the Slanesh, Zinch, or Nurgle, whatever... Well, Slanesh, Zinch, or Nurgle, whichever that god's... They'll be, they'll be fine with it. They'll yeah. be fine with it. Yeah. And possibly some of the others will be fine with it as well. It'll be corn followers who'll be pissed. Um, I, I guess this goes into to more questions as well players run through a black crusade they complete it would you end the game there or would you let them run another black crusade if they ran a minor one to start with yeah i, I think you probably could I, I think you know certainly from the point of view of the fact that there's a learning curve in getting the, the the crusade map together i would probably try and run something smaller first just to give the players enough opportunity to cut their teeth also because because of the plunder system you can actually raise additional troops for troops. a larger crusade exactly right on. yeah exactly. So, you, so you do it you, you get you get your bare minimum of three fleets three 
three hosts as such, and then you you do a small crusade. In the process, you're able to raise a couple more hosts and maybe another fleet, and if, suddenly you're now if more. If you're lucky, able. you might be able to get some fancy super duper weapon or something along those lines out of it. Yeah, you know, is the the goal of the first Black Crusade, which will make it easier in the long run as well. Certainly. Yeah. Okay. All right, then I think that's it for the, the Black Crusade discussion. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's move on. All supplicants report to the Administratum for career assignment. All right, let's jump straight back into to Nurgle's Garden now. I'm going to talk about the uh, the Riding World Sorcerer King archetype. Yeah. Now, when we first heard about the Table of Decay coming out, I think we had conversations at the time about how are they going to do a... Nurgle Sorcerer. Nurgle Sorcerer, exactly right, because at the end of the day, Psy Rating is a Zeech-aligned... No, it isn't. No, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, it, which one is? No. No, all the... Things that boost psi rating. Ah, okay. So, so, so psi rating, psi rating and psi powers are not. Yeah. But everything else, like, like str- strong, strong-minded. Psy nescient, strong-minded, you know, blasphemous incantations, uh, warp sense, just about anything else is. Yeah. As well as willpower, which was the big thing. That's it. If yeah. willpower's zinch aligned which is opposed to Nurgle. Nurgle is going to be very expensive. Very expensive, unless you buy that up before you begin get dedicated to... Yeah. And here you've got a character who starts off dedicated to Nurgle as well. Which makes that impossible. Okay, so what actually is a Writhing World Sorcerer King? So, uh, the Writhing World is... What do you call it? A primitive world, really? It's sort of a, it's a, it's a low-tech... Yeah, I, I'd say it's it's a primitive world. Yeah, it's... It's, 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 it's a sort of scavenger world. That's it, yeah. Um, where the people on the world are effectively infested with all manner of small organisms, worms, you know, sort of things that crawl through their skin. It's just, it's just commonplace on that particular place. Yep. And the, the sorcerer kings are basically these lord biomancers who... Rule the world. Rule the world, basically, yeah. Have these, these giant moving cities of, you know, sort yeah. of, of the, unusual The entire organisms. planet is alive. Yes. As such, like, well, they believe. They don't know. No one's dug down deep enough. Yes. And from the point of view of a of a PC in the setting, they are one of these sorcerer kings or biomancers who has decided, I'm going to go and find a better lock myself away from the writhing world. Yeah. I'm going to go and discover something else as such. Um, so they are, for the most part, dedicated to um, experimentation, I'd say, yeah. and, and, the, and the creation of new constructs. It's all about building new life. Yeah, they're, they're oh. definitely biomancers par excellence. That's it, yes. And they even see their own flesh as a tapestry. Yeah. You know, they, 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 don't, they don't lament the various things living beneath their skin. They are part of what they are as such. I certainly think that although this is a psychic class, there's no need to focus heavily on the psychic powers of the class. You know, I almost see them as more of a bit of a, a, a mad scientist type. Yeah. You know, and, and the, the, the magic powers they have or the psychic powers they have just help to supplement that. But also it's what they know and what they do not just what they can do with the warp as well that makes them specific. Yeah, I see them as the sort who'd be almost like a um, magus biologist corrupted by the warp. Yes, They're going to be lots of experimentation and mixing things with warp sorcery with human flesh or other animals' flesh or demon flesh or whatever they can get their hands on. <laughs> exactly. Uh, now, they have a couple of special abilities. First yep. off is Verminous Necromancer, which means they can always count their psi rating as one higher when activating Nurgle powers. Very nice. Very nice, definitely. The second one is um, Worm Master Supreme that allows them the level of control over the various organs that live in their body that they can actually effectively move something out of their body and form this sort of gestalt swarm of corpse worms, basically. 
um, and, and use this in in combat. Basically, it becomes a, it becomes you know quite a quite a dangerous enemy as such. And he's actually really very dangerous. It is. It, is. It, it does require some concentration on their part. They have to actually spend a half action each turn to maintain it. If they don't, they take raining damage as the rest of the swarm inside them keeps trying to get out to go and join its brethren as such in, in devouring yeah. the world as such. But that's not a huge drawback, I wouldn't think. Just, you know. It's just going to suck if you get stunned for multiple rounds in a row. Yeah, taking D10 raining damage automatically each yeah, turn. Because yeah, because if, if you've been stunned from a critical wound, that is possibly going to kill you. Yes, yeah. that's true. So, you know, there is a level of danger. But, you know, anything that good, obviously there will be. Yep. Alright, so when it comes to actually building a Riley World Sorcerer King, I think characteristic-wise, being a psyche, you've got to put willpower up there as well. You know, willpower. I mean, get, get it high at the start, so you don't have to buy so much of it with XP that's going to be very expensive as a normal uh, I'd about. say perception as well, for the same reason, so you don't have to buy up your Sinescience too much. That's it. Um, I think intelligence, because they are mm. that sort of that, that, that law-driven sort of style of character. Yep. Um, toughness, you know, toughness, always when, definitely, yeah, when, yeah. You, when you experiment your body. And I think also um, infamy. Is the sort of one you want to focus on because they are at the end of the day that they've come from a world where they are the top of the the food chain. Yeah, such. They, they, that is my minor problem with this actual class is the fact that they're coming from a world where they are kings. Yes, they're god kings in charge of a city. You know that sort of represents where their infamy comes from. But you, how is the GM going to use that in play? Yeah, I mean, you, I think you do. They get, I think it's either plus ten or plus fifteen starting infamy anyway. But uh, yeah. still, still relatively. It's on par with other characters from these it, books. It's as on well. par with other characters from these books, but that's the problem. You know, these, these, this is someone who runs a city. Obviously, it's a city full of dregs. Yeah, but I mean, once again, once you pull someone out of that environment, though, does how much of that that power really comes with them? You yeah, know, it's such you know. It's, uh, I can see that making the argument that you know, okay, if you if taken to the rising world, then the player characters are you know have to be in awe of how powerful this person is, but. Otherwise, you know, they're just another chaos worshiper wandering around the, the screen vortex. Yeah. All right. Um, skill wise, uh, I thought command only once again because of that that the fact they are from a leadership position. Um, forbidden and scholastic laws definitely. Even uh, though forbidden laws is inch lined. Yes, it's like, going to be expensive. I know. I know. Uh, logic. Logic definitely. Yeah. Medicaid. Medicaid yeah. definitely. And once again, Sundiscience. Yeah. They've still got to have it just so they can use yeah, it. That's the biggest problem here is the fact that, as we mentioned, Forbidden Laws, Logic, Sinescience, they're all Zinch aligned and this character kind of needs them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be, it's going to be a bit of an XP hog, unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately, but, uh, and of course you've got to keep buying Nurgle aligned stuff to keep yourself aligned to Nurgle. That's it. Yeah. So. Alright, so in terms of talents... Um, Air of Authority sort of fits with, with Command. I, I didn't really go any further down. There's all the various sort of like Inspire Wrath trees and such. Like. It's, I I, they are not a charismatic leader. No. They are just somebody who is in charge through their sheer power as such. So Air of Authority is, a, is as deep as I would go into that particular line. Um, I've also, for the most part, s- s- um, stayed away from psychic-based talents. Yeah. Because I said, I don't think necessarily that, that, that being psychic is what they are first and foremost. So, you know, you can always look at things like, you know, Warp Conduit or Failed by the Warp, that sort of stuff, but at the end of the day, I don't know necessarily that's what this this character's shtick is. Yeah. So I've said things like um, Cold-Hearted, you know, so, you know, I don't know why you would try and seduce a man whose flesh is writhing with, with creatures, but, you know... Maggots and, and bloke flies. If you do, they're immune to it. <laughs> um, and what a shock. <laughs> I, also, coming on from that, Betrayer. Um I mean, we're not talking the classics of Zinchi Betrayer. We're talking about the fact that they just see no 
value in life except as part of experiment. Yeah, you know, the, it, they see it as the building blocks rather than... Yeah, the, the moment someone serves more use of them as a sack of flesh they can manipulate than as a follower, they will turn on them straight away. Yeah. Um, okay, Corpus Conversion, which they get for free anyway, but it's worth mentioning here is really, really key to what these guys do, which is the ability to take damage in order to enhance their psychic ability, but they do get it free. Um, die Hard... I think that allows you to roll twice to avoid death from blood loss. I think that just the sort of the nature of their body would be yeah. necessitate that. Um, likewise, Hardy, you know, they sound all, constitution, all, you know, as always, well, yeah. yeah, and sound constitution is a good way of getting your noble, your noble. Um, it, it is, but as well. I think with this sort of class, it probably fits more than some of the others. Yeah, disturbing voice. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, they're not going to have a good charm anyway. Having a good intimidate, I think, goes well with their sort of general aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, infused knowledge, you know, for the, for the good way to get access to those skills of having to spend all the points on, on common laws and scholastic laws. Yeah. Um, jaded, definitely. You know, immune to my own horrors. Um, Master Churgeon. Yeah, definitely. As a, as a Medicaid sort of thing. I think, given their nature, paranoia would also fit in as well. Yeah, uh, they're, they're very sort of They're very inwardly focused. Probably the only warp they really go for is warp sense. So that, that, that sort of that, that, that the free action to, to do some yeah. yeah, just because it relates to just what they're studying as such. They are observers as much as anything else yeah, as scientists. To, to be honest, I'd say you'd probably not buy too many talents, and you'd buy more in the way of skills and stats for yes, this sort of class. Definitely. And if you're going to buy psychic powers, which you probably should get Nogle, um, get Nogle powers because get they're, Nogle they're, powers because they're going to be one higher psi rating. That's Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, the last one I put down here was Wisdom of the Ancients. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh. If they've been around long enough. Yeah. yeah. It's just a good one in terms of you can spend the point of information in order to yeah. get and some insight into something as such, you know. Yeah, and they're, they're there well is mention in the book on the writhing world, you know, eating people's brains does give them knowledge. Yeah, that's true. So. Yeah. They're certainly going to know things that they possibly shouldn't. Yeah. So just, just a selection of options them. anyway. But yeah, certainly I think that to try and make this a psycho par excellence is going to just cost you a lot of XP. You know, make make this a interesting sort of, you know, uh, mad doctor slash enhanced by psychic power sort of character with, with unusual physical traits, I think, is the more sort of character you go for. Yeah. When it comes to playing them, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, awaken your inner mad scientist. You know, yes. just, just remember the complete alien mindset these guys have, that, you know, that, that life is... Uh, bi- uh, biology in general is a building block to play with as such. It's, there's no yeah. there's no value in life. There's no value in personality or individuality. It's all about the the flesh and the and the materials that can be used for all sorts of unusual things. Um, well, I guess also remember that your character does come from what is essentially a more primitive world. Yeah, you know, they're not going to be the sort of character which covets the biggest weapons or the you know the 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 the, the longest range sniper rifle that sort of stuff. You know, they are. Yeah. You know, a, a, a creature of flesh and, and blood and bone specifically as such. So Yeah, I'd go with all that. Yep. So any other thoughts on the Riley World Sorcerer King? Um, no, I think that pretty much covers it. It's just important to remember that if they do go back to the writhing world, if your story does take them back there, remember that these guys are god kings. They have a village somewhere filled with pitiful peasants yes. who worship him. Um or her. Yep. So, so, Mike, your your Nurgle is among your favoured of the Chaos Gods. Yeah. You, you, know, you play playing Marines in, in the war game from time to time. And you like Psychers. Yes. Would you play a Riding World Sorcerer King or would you... Turn, yeah. yeah you oh, would? yeah. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. All right. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's move on, shall we? Okay. Attention, loyal servants of the Imperium. 
Stand by to receive orders. Okay, so we've alluded to today's plot hook a little bit earlier on in our Black Crusade discussion, but here is it anyway. So I said, a new war master has arisen within the screen vortex and is drawing together forces to launch a Black Crusade into Imperial space. This war master intends to invade a region of space desirous to the heretics. And uh, worse, he will do so in the name of a chaos god the heretics do not support. How will the heretics react? Will they try to assassinate the war master? Join the crusade and try and divert it from within? Or simply use the crusade as a vehicle to access their own true goal? So this is this idea about um, involving the player characters in a crusade earlier on. Yeah. Not just the, not just the first one they launch. I mean, presumably, you know, at some point any war master was previously a peon and may have previously been part of a Black Crusade, and it may not have gone the way they necessarily wanted. Uh, certainly, reducing the opportunity as player characters, so, or as a GM to create a situation where the player characters really want to eventually lead a Black Crusade to do something in particular. Now, someone else suddenly wants to do that already, and they may choose to try and subvert or prevent that so they can do it themselves later on. Oh, definitely. I could see this actually being a good starting game for a Black Crusade game. Yep. The players are part of a Black Crusade. You can... Set them out with the basic framework of what they'll need to do their own Black Crusade later on in your campaign. You can give them a single host, um, some knowledge about how a Black Crusade should or shouldn't be run, preferably shouldn't be run, yes. um, and you know some some good conflicts with another War Master who's failed because of them or despite of them. Yep. Yeah. I mean, so you can always remember that when it comes to taking anybody in the Black in the black Crusade or in the Screaming Vortex that if they've got high infamy, they will be coming back. Yes. And they will remember the fact that, you know, that, that you tried to kill them in the past and yes. it quickly becomes a, a, a recurring cycle as such. But, uh, yeah. yeah, I think certainly this is a good way to show the player characters that, that just how fickle Black Crusades actually are. That, you know, that the individual forces within can easily bring down the whole situation. Yeah. And uh, it will help get them ready for when they launch their own Black Crusade when they get their own lieutenants turning traitor against them as well. Yeah. You know, or once again, having some particular goal, which is not in line with what they're trying to do. But uh, anyway, so that's, that's my thought. Yep. Let's uh, jump on to our next bit. Revere the Omnisia, for it is the source of all power. Okay, let's talk about war gear now. And I want to talk about one of my favourite pieces of war gear from the Tome of Decay. One of my favourite pieces of war gear in general from Black Crusade. Yep. It's abusive. You know, it is powerful. It is the Man Reaper. Ah, yes. The Man Reaper is a demon weapon that appears in in Tome of Decay. Uh, It takes the form of a giant power scythe. So let's go through it. First of all, it has a a demon bound into it with a willpower of 57, but a binding strength of 3. Yeah. So you're only rolling against a 27 to try and uh, to to overcome it as such. Yeah. That being said, it does 2d10 plus 7 damage, rending. Uh, Base. Base, with a penetration of 7. Yep. It has Felling 5, Power Field, Toxic 2, and Unbalanced. Yes. Okay, that's just the base stats so weapon. It's not very good for parrying. No, not good for parrying. But it's also got two special traits. One trait is whenever you use it in a charge or an all-out attack, you can strike an additional opponent for every two degrees success on the attack roll with an identical attack. So you can literally swing this thing in massive arcs and take out yeah. groups of people as you go. Yeah, perfect for when you're fighting against a horde. Yes, uh, secondly, if you somehow actually get a best quality version, and it is near unique, even at common quality, but if you've got a best quality version, it also gets the force weapon trait as well. Yeah. So this is an incredible um, demon weapon as far as I'm concerned. It's the uh, weapon of, of Typhus. Uh, uh, Typhus or Mortarian? Typhus. Typhus, okay. Yeah. 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 
that that's the weapon type. I think Maltarian uses one as well. Aside, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So. They both do. Yeah, you know, because <laughs> it is the best. Yes. <laughs> Why would you use anything else? I, I find it funny that you know they sort of got the rules for you know okay you can roll on your um, your mutation list and get okay I'm given a demon weapon but and there's all these demon weapon examples in the books but they are all so much more powerful than you could possibly attain with you know you're not going to get a plague bearer is going to give you the powers of the Mad Reaper as such. No, no, yeah. definitely not. Um, you know, in those cases, I'd always say you'd have to be of substantial infamy to be able to get something like this. Yeah, I mean, the weapon like this is almost something that would be the focus of a game session to try and obtain. Oh, yeah. um, we've discussed the, uh, the Demon Prince creation rules before. Yes. And the Demon weapon trait, which they can get, says specifically they can get any Demon weapon aligned to their god from the books. Yes. This is the sort of weapon that a demon prince has. Yes. This definitely. isn't the sort of weapon that a normal pleb has <laughs> unless they've gone out of their way and, you know, fought against an entire army to get it sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely this is the focus of a story if you want to get it early. Yeah. Certainly, you know, as a person who's playing a noble character in a game, you know, who's not too far from demon prince them, I've certainly got my eye on the Man Reaper yeah, as a <laughs> absolutely as a potential future option. Yeah, we we do have another person in the group who is more melee focused, and I and I hate to overshadow her, but I can't not have a Man Reaper if I'm a Nurgle Demon oh, Prince. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> and of course because it becomes a false weapon as well. Once you become a Demon Prince, you start getting some psi rating. Yep. Yeah, it's it's going to be pretty scary. That's it. All right, then let's move along. My lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. So let's do our review, finally, of Forbidden Stars. Now, I have had a chance to read and play this game. Mike, you have not. No, I have not. So I will I will lead the review, and you can feel free to jump in with any questions or comments as we go. Yep. So Forbidden Stars is a tactical war game uh, created by FFG in the, in the 40k universe. It is for two to four players. Um, it is not like Battlefleet Gothic or, um, or things like the... the 40k miniatures game and it's more like a, a single session sit down board game you know reset and play again differently it is a long board game I would say that um, it, once you include setup time you're looking at a minimum of one hour per player in the game so two play game minimum two hours okay. four play game minimum four hours you know it's it, you have to choose to devote an afternoon to this game you know which, which is not a bad idea it's just you know, just keep in mind that it is not a quick setup quick play pack away play different games sort of game it's a, it's a play it's, it, this is the game you're going to play when you get together this day to play games yeah um, the core mechanic of the game is that uh, each each player picks one side so you've basically got um, Eldar Orcs Chaos and Space Marines um, each side has its own specific abilities so you know playing a different side in the game will give you a very different sort of gameplay experience um, so yeah they are, they are all quite unique uh, and the object- each group is basically trying to claim certain objectives on the board. So you, in each, in each basic territory or location, you'll put down objective markers for each individual side. And the aim of the game is to claim every single one of your objectives before the, the game time runs out, which is eight turns, basically. Now, objectives are all particular to a singular single group. So if there's a marine objective, it's not an objective for anybody else. So the only reason that another player, another character, would, or another another player would try and defend that location would be to prevent that player from attaining their objective as such. There's no sort of, there's no contested objectives. It's just you know single objectives, but you are trying to prevent your opponents from actually reaching their objectives. 
Um, if you get to the end of the eight turns and no one's claimed all their objectives, it goes on whoever has the, the most number of objectives, basically. And then there are further tie-breaking mechanics, but effectively, you know, what you're trying to do is get your, all, your, all your objectives before the end of the game. And the more players there are, the more objectives there are, the more widespread there are, because the bigger the board gets. Yeah. The way the board works in this is you actually have a number of tiles. Right? Each tile is double-sided. They can fit together any single way. So you know, any edge can light to any other edge as such. And so you can build a myriad of different gaming solutions as such. There are, there's basically two ways of setting up the game. One is a sort of predetermined setup where basically you follow the rules and say this is where um, all the tiles are, this is where all the starting pieces are, this is where all the objectives are. Or there is actually a mode where you strategically set up with the other players how the board goes together, where's what, who starts where, etc. Um, so as you get better at the game, you can start doing some more sort of uh, different conflicts. So, so every single game is going to play quite differently from the rest. Uh, the game has a very nice tactical element where you basically have to think in reverse. The the, the base sort of each, the, the base turn in each game involves all the player characters placing orders on the board, right? and so the orders are things like you know produce more units, move to a location, dominate a location, etc. And you you place your orders face down in the middle of the board where the order will take place. So say you want to move. Um, your units to a particular tile, you will place a movement order face down in the middle of the tile you want to move them to. Yeah. Now, if another player plays an order to the same to the same location, they place that order on top of yours. And once all orders are placed, the orders are resolved from the top down. So it's always a good debate, okay, I really want to really okay, the space and put out a movement token there, but if someone's put three tokens on top of yours, you've got to wait till all the tokens on top of your ones are resolved before you can play your movement token. Likewise, if you want to move to a location and attack, you've actually got to put down your attack, you know, your, your, your command order first, and then you move on top of that because it's going to be resolved in the, in the reverse order. If, it, if it's when it's your turn to resolve an order, none of your orders are currently exposed, they're all, they're all covered by other people's orders, then too bad, you miss your turn, it keeps going. So it's very strategic in terms of planning out how you think the orders that you place are going to resolve. There are basically four different orders. Um, you get two of each, and you place four orders per turn. So you can potentially place you know, two sets of two or one of, one of each of the four or any sort of combination they're in. Um, but yeah, you've got to work out how you think they're actually going to be resolved. Um, the combat mechanic in the game when you actually do come to conflicts is relatively complex. So once once the units sort of meet in battle, you have a, a dice system you roll, um, and it's basically three different sort of icons on the dice. One is basically damage done, one is damage resisted, one is morale changes. And um, once you've rolled the dice, you then go into the sort of three-round thing where you actually play cards from your hand. You have these special sort of combat cards that allow you to add additional dice results, re-roll dice, in some way basically affect the result. Yep. And after those three, after the dice are rolled and the three cards are played aside, then you will either have um, you know, one side wiped out, uh, one side completely routed, or um, a, a tie, in which case it comes down to morale. The, the, side, the side that has lost the most morale basically quits the field and, and, and withdraws effectively. I guess it's one of the drawbacks is that these sort of conflicts can take five to ten minutes to resolve. And at the time you're doing that, only the two players currently involved in the conflict are actually playing the game. Yeah. The, other, the other players in the game are currently just watching as these conflicts take place. Um, it's definitely a game where you have to be constantly active. You cannot 
easily sit back and just I think I'm, I'm just going to slowly take the board piece by piece as I go. It, the game is too fast. You need to, you need to basically be proactive and taking risks from the start. And the only drawback here is that if you take a big risk that doesn't pay off, you know, you send all your forces to one particular location and you just get really unlucky with the dice rolls and the cards, you could be effectively neutered for the rest of the game. You know, the, the game does not have a solid comeback mechanic. You know, if, if you commit too early, then you're basically playing for second place. Okay. You know, um, you, you're not, you're not going to... I mean, there's a chance, you've got eight turns, you may somehow manage to rally, but it's got, you're going to be on the back foot for a long time if, if, you, if you make another mistake. But you've got to take the risks or else you'll just find yourself not there where you need to be when the game gets to the, so the pointy end. Is it always eight turns, regardless of how many players are in the game? It's always eight turns, yes. Yeah, uh, or, or until someone gets all their objectives. Okay. With a, with a smaller player game that says objectives, I think it's probably a greater chance you won't hit the eight-turn limit as such. You know, but Because you know, not only do you have more objectives, but you've got a bigger board with more players as well and more opponents to go against too. Okay. It is a game where um, there's no concept of diplomacy. You know, It's 40K. There shouldn't be as such. You know, You are just there to wipe each other out. Okay. You know, I suppose you could make you know little deals across the table where I won't attack you, if you won't attack me, we'll just wipe out those two first, and then we'll focus on, on on ourselves after that. You know, but you know, it's not not really the intent of the game. It's not it's not a game of civilization or diplomacy or Twilight okay. Imperium. You know, it is. So, so this is definitely a PvP game. This isn't any sort of. No, there's no cooperative behavior. In the there's game, no though. cooperative behavior. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's got some very nice mechanics. I like the fact that every single unit or every single every single army has its own special ability has its own figures that are very nice looking figures as well. Um, you know, they have their own upgrade things. So effectively, you know, regular forces can be upgraded to say space Marines and like scouts can become space Marines in the Marine chapter can become land raiders. You know, you've got um, different, uh, <laughs> sorry, I just pictured this space Marine just, you know, becoming a land raider. Oh, yeah. He's given a land raider, which he drives now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, um, uh, you place, you've got, you know, you've got, um, uh, space forces as well. You have space conflicts too. Um, you know, it's very much you have to basically create a line of spaceships because you can't move troops without fleets to actually move them as well. So you've got to make sure you have supply lines established in order to move forces to a front as well. Um, you've got the system where the cards that you actually play in um, uh, the, the combats are actually quite weak, but you have an extra deck of cards with more powerful cards and you can actually, over the course of the game, upgrade your deck to remove not-so-useful cards and replace them with better cards as well. So... Throughout the game, there's this constant sort of drive to expand your forces, improve your forces, you know. So do I want to be the sort of person who just pumps out, uses all my points to pump out as many you know, military forces as possible and tries to zerg the, the, the opposition with, with, with simple forces? Or do I sit back and spend all my points bolstering my army so that by the time this zerg army arrives, I've got such powerful weapons that they simply they just, you know, splatter against my shields, basically, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you can... It, it, you can play different starting locations, different units, different tactics, and have you know so many different games with this and such different different styles of play. I think it's quite good in that respect. My only real sort of concerns with it are yeah the the, the length of the game. You know, it's and don't get me wrong, there are some really really long ball games out there as well. Yeah, um, this is just a bit. It's a bit longer than I like. You know, I think that two players ninety minutes is perfect. You know, say three players to four players two hours is perfect. Four players four hours. It's getting on there a bit, I think, really, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and just the fact that, yeah, there are times where really two people are sitting out the game for five, ten minutes while they wait for someone else to resolve their activities as such. Yeah. Um, but overall, I, th- I think it's a very good game. It's very indicative of 
of 40k. It has a, it has a fantastic 40k feel. You could potentially even use the tiles to make your crusade map for your Black Crusade in uh, in the Black Crusade uh, board game you wanted to. I certainly wouldn't use the game like you know we've talked in the past about using Battlefleet Gothic in our Road Trader game to resolve largest starship operations. You wouldn't really use this game to resolve anything you know, concepts from a role playing game. No, it's just, it's just a board game, you know. But yeah. maybe some of the the figures might be nice to you know help you represent your Black Crusade anyway. But certainly as a board game, I'm going to give it a, a seven out of ten. Oh, 7 out of 10. That's yeah, not too bad. Yeah, it's not the best game I've played, but it's certainly still a lot of fun. And it, it does a really good job of capturing 40k, which is what I think what it's set out to do as well. Okay, excellent. All right. Okay. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. So our last topic for conversation today is basically our thoughts on the nature of Nurgle. I haven't really made any notes, so I thought we'll just sort of talk from talk from the heart as to how we feel about, you know, the Plague Father, you know, the... the, the the, 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 fl- the, the fly lord yeah that's it and uh, j- just where we see him fitting into the the 40k canon as such I think that probably out of all the chaos gods we've had this conversation in the past but I think that Nurgle is probably the most misunderstood you know he's really a good guy that's not so much that it's more a case of people assume that the the purviews of Nurgle are entirely death and disease and and uh, while they certainly feature into his sort of style and set that's not entirely that's not that's not the entirety of it as such you know it's it, it's more about I guess the fact that it, and Nurgle has sometimes been called the god of all you know because everything in time decays yes e- e- everything is subject to entropy and Nurgle is a god who encompasses entropy you know the fact that entropy is usually you know surrounded by things like corrosion disease death you know those things have rubbed off on Nurgle as such and have become part of his aesthetic as such but at the end of the day it's more about the sensation of of just the hopeless inevitability of of uh, death and decay really and, and we sort of I said in the past you know what is it that actually brings somebody to choose to worship Nurgle you know the, the others are quite clear you know with Sonesh there is the physical pleasure with Zinch there is knowledge and power with Corn, there is you know pure martial prowess, but what actually draws a person to choose to worship Nurgle? Salvation. Yes. Yeah. End of the end of the day, as we're just we're just saying the break there. While I've been experiencing some more pain thanks to my recent chaos gifts, you know, Mike said to me, you know, if, if a shadowy figure appeared beside your bed today and said I could take away the pain, can't cure you, but yes. I can take away the pain. <laughs> would you say yes? That's it. You know. So, and this is often you know soldiers dying on the battlefield. People who you know fear the inevitability of death—they are those who are most likely to accept, you know, the the corpse god's caress and and, and turn their their worship to Nurgle. Basically, I think the other major thing about about Nurgle that's misunderstood is basically the the demeanor you might say, Nurgle's demeanor and the demeanor of his followers. You know, people sort of assume that you know death is associated with you know depression and that sort of stuff, but. In actuality, it's a sort of cosmic joke that Nurgle and his followers are actually quite jovial. You know that they that they are they represent the sort of the the acceptance. You know that the fact that salvation from death is is, is acceptance yeah, of it. It's, it's the existence. acceptance, and it's also the fact that they they're fully aware that you know new life can't begin without the old life dying first. Yes. So, you know, it's not really death; it's just the next step. Yeah. That's it. Uh, and so you've got, you know, Nurgle's followers include things like, you know, the Great Unclean One, yeah. you know, the, the, the biggest of the demon princes. Um, you've got Plague Bearers, um, Nurglings, and uh, Beasts of Nurgle. Beasts of Nurgle? 
And the um, the flies of Nurgle now. Oh, that's right. Yes, the plague flies and such. Plague yeah. flies, that's yeah, it, the, yeah, the giant plague flies that the plague bearers can ride upon. Yes. <laughs> so. And uh, plague toads, and a myriad of other things, which are all essentially the same big, disgusting, slimy. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, but but yeah, well, pra- I suppose Nurglings aren't big. No. <laughs> But, you know, once again, that, that appeals to some. You know, some people feel that, um, you know, acceptance of the inevitability of death means conquering it as such. Yeah, and that's certainly, when I've been playing a worshipper of Nurgle in, in our own Black Crusade game, that's the estate that I've gone for, as someone who believes that, you know, um, acceptance of death is to rule over it as such. You know, yeah. to, to no, no, no longer fear it, no longer be bound by this concept that, you know, I have to do what I have to do because I'm going to die one day. It's just accepting that I'm going to die one day, so I'm going to do what I'm going to do until then. And you know the the my worship gives me that that strength to understand that and embrace that and live live life to the fullest as such. Yes. Yeah, with a bit of risk taking involved as well. A little bit <laughs> so, of risk taking. That's it. Yeah. So it has to be some risk taking. That's it. So what places Nurgle in opposition with the other gods? I mean, Nurgle's greatest threat, well, great greatest enemy, would you say, would be Zeech? That's Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And what what is it about Zeech and Nurgle that just doesn't jive? Um. I suppose it's stagnation versus change. Yes. You know, you know, order versus non-order. Um, Zinch tries to build things up and build them up and build them up and build them up and continue building upon the old, whereas Nurgle tries to break things down to restart again from the beginning. So, whereas one tries to make ever more complicated plots and ever more intricate things, the other is trying to break things down to their most simplest components. Yeah, and in fact, Nurgle delights in ruining Zinch's plots by, oh, you know, through, absolutely, yeah, <laughs> just creating destruction, just, just you know, rains them in as such at the last minute. So, yeah, um, and, and I think also Nurgle in some way is vaguely opposed to Sinesh as well. Um, I, I, I guess more so the fact that um, uh, I mean, once again, it's, it's a misnomer to say that Sinesh is all about pleasure because pain itself is also features into the Sinesh yeah. concept, but. There are sort of there are sort of aspects of Sadashi you might consider like physical perfection, physical beauty, that sort of stuff, which are the antithesis of what you see with the aesthetic of of Nurgle worshippers. Yeah, but, but you know, if their disgustingness is perfect enough, yes, <laughs> that too can become perfection. You know, okay. he, he's horrid attempt at, at trying to appear uncouth and disgusting is so perfect that that becomes perfection. That's true. I mean, that, that that's really why. Yeah, definitely. Um, Zinch is the is the main uh, uh, opposition of, of Nurgle. Yeah, I can't remember which book it's in. Is in one of the adventures about a, a section where they have to make something so repulsive to a demon of Slanesh. But the the danger is if you make it too perfectly, yeah, it no longer is repulsive anymore because now it's a thing of beauty because it's so perfectly disgusting. <laughs> exactly. You know, you've got this fine line to tread that you can go a bit too far. That's it, yeah. So, I mean, what advice would you give to players who... Okay, so they say, I, I want to, for whatever reason, play a worship of Nurgle, not so much because I believe in Nurgle's ways, but because I want to make this as a character. I want to, make, I want to play, a, I want to play a, a, a plague, plague marine. I want to play yeah. a writhing old sorcerer king. Yeah. What advice would you give for playing somebody who has chosen to embrace... The corpse god. Um, well, plague marines we'll talk about separately in a moment. But yeah. for the others, um, it's not about directly killing your opponents. It's about infecting them, making them suffer, making them doubt, bringing despair, making them understand that you know all things die in the end. 
they themselves don't have to die there and then. Simply understanding that and then taking that. Yeah, every great work they produce will one day come to ruin. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. They're not so. Followers of Nobles aren't so much about killing everyone they meet, even through disease. They're about spreading it as far as possible. You know, if you make a disease which kills someone in six hours, that's not going to be very effective because everyone's going to die before they spread it very far. Yeah. So, in that regard, you know, it's all about the long-term game. Similar to Zinch, it's all about the long-term game. You're not trying to do something instantly, instant gratification like with Slanesh. Um... Plague Marines are a little bit different because even Nurgle considers them to be blunt instruments, um, which is saying something. <laughs> um, they're there just to be foot soldiers, really, just to kill the opposition, crush them, you know, and, and send that despair ahead. Yes. But they're the foot soldiers. So, you know, if you're playing a Plague Marine, you don't have to worry quite as much about the long game and all that sort of thing, but other followers should. Do you think it's worthwhile playing a follower of Nurgle to sort of try and embrace that same jovial nature of oh, yeah, Nurgle's worship. I mean, I, I've sort of tried to play with my with my Nurgle worship but more of a, uh, a an emotionless sort of person. Like, I, yeah. I've, you know, taking the, things like the nervous... melancholy. That's it, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think that there is room for a person who, once they fully embrace Nurgle, to sort of accept the cosmic joke as such. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely, yes. Realise everything eventually comes to ruin. So, yeah. Alright, that's just some thoughts on, on Nurgle. You yeah. know, I think it's... Uh, uh, having now played a character worshipping Nurgle it's been a fun experience as well um, yeah. you know, I've never done so before so um, you know it's sort of it is harder to look at worshipping Nurgle and say why would you actually do that but you know now I've had a chance to sort of read the books and get an idea for it I think it makes a lot of sense yeah and uh, yeah it's definitely worth a try in your own campaign you know try giving a follow of Nurgle a, a look and uh, get into that, that guide of Nurgle and see what, what horrors lie within yeah all astropaths in the choir chamber message incoming all right, so before we close out the show, let's do our sort of regular community section. Uh, first off, we always thank people for new iTunes reviews, and we've actually had a couple in the last uh, few weeks. So thank you very much to Juggleman and Acklemar13, yep. both of which who gave us uh, some very nice reviews on iTunes. We really do appreciate that. Um, if you do enjoy the show, please take a moment to review us on iTunes and let us let uh, your friends and other people know how much you enjoy the show, and we, we always like to hear good feedback and yep. bad feedback when it comes as well. Um, okay, also in terms of comments that we've received, first off, we've had a new voicemail from, uh, from Douglas. Yes. So I will play that voicemail for you now. Hi, this is Douglas Knout from Austin, Texas. I just wanted to call in and say thank you guys so much for putting out a great show. Uh, I go on long runs every morning, and I listen to this show uh, while I'm uh, making those long trips in the uh, pre-dawn hours. Uh, it's very entertaining, full of great material. Helped me out a lot with uh, putting together games and running games. I uh, hope you guys continue to put out more awesome in the future. Uh, thanks again. So thanks very much, Douglas, for that. Very much appreciate it. I, I do believe, though, that you know, a man should only run when he's being chased, especially in the early hours of the morning. But you know, that's <laughs> what you like to do. If you enjoy the show when you're doing that, then that's uh, that's that's good for you as well. I, I tend to listen to my podcast while driving to and from work. But that's uh, you know, there there are, there are, there are fit gamers out there. We are not amongst them, but there are fit gamers out there. And that is why you are currently laying on the bed in absolute. Agony. That's it. Hey, hey, hey! I've I've lost eight kilos since. Well, that's about what about nearly twenty pounds since this. Uh, since this whole thing came about, so uh, you know. Okay, yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Anyway, <laughs> so once again, thank you to Douglas for the for the kind comments. Now we've had a question raised by Cameron on our Facebook group, 
Um, he's he raises it in relation to Black Crusade, but I think it could apply to other systems. He basically said, "What do you do to prevent players from just wanting to stockpile?" All sorts of weird and wonderful weapons, especially in Black Crusade, where they can get their hands on some truly profane stuff that normal Imperial characters wouldn't want to put their hands on. Like, you know, how do you prevent characters from just wanting to get every single gun or whatever under the sun? And so, are you, you know, so we want to talk first? Go ahead. Well, why? Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> they want to own 60 LAS guns. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and? You know, you know I, I understand from some points of view. I mean, but they're not going to use everything all the time. And yeah. some stuff is left neglected is going to become useless. Yeah. You know, owning a land raider, if you don't know how to operate it, or don't know how to maintain it, or repair it, or get the parts and the fuel and the everything else, it's just going to fall apart eventually and become useless. Let me give you my take on this. Yeah. We've spoken in the past about the fact that equipment plays a big part in these set, in these systems. Oh, you know, effectively, especially in like some of the lower power ones like Road Trader, Dark Heresy, you have, you know, below average skills. You know, you, you're going to fail more often than you succeed. And often equipment is what you use to, to bolster up, you know. Uh, that's right. A, 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 clip, a clip harness makes a big difference to climb checks. It, well, you know. yeah, it takes you from, if you've got the skill, a 30% <laughs> chance to a 60% chance. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it's... Um, it's important for characters to stockpile equipment that is useful for their what they're doing. That doesn't necessarily mean that every single person carries everything they own all the time. When we were playing an old uh, Dark Heresy campaign run by our friend Pat, all right, um, and we were basically playing Inquisitors in training, um, I stockpiled from my character a lot of different weapons, a lot of different styles of weapons. You know, so I had you know like bolters, and I had you know, power blades, and I got this thing from the, I think one of the books called a Serpentine Power Blade, which is like a miniaturized blade, which can be folded down and form into something else, like a cane or a fan, whatever that's something. And the concept was, whenever we were given a mission, I sort of did this thing where my character would sort of think, okay, what shall I bring with me today that's going to be useful for this mission? Because every single thing that I bring along that's not useful for the mission is one thing that potentially exposes me to some risk. Yeah. You know, so if I'm posing as a foppish noble... Having a missile launcher with me is not going to, you know, be, it's not going to fit well into that particular that that particular style as such. And, and, and likewise, even in Black Crusade, our, our first game of Black Crusade the, you know, that, that we played, our friend Brian chose to play uh, Chaos Chosen, and he used one of his stunts to get his hands on a plasma cannon, and his character went everywhere with his plasma cannon. He went into a into a tavern with a plasma cannon and asked for a room. And, you know, it was, I, I treated the NPC's reaction as though someone was being, as though a space marine in power armor was holding a plasma cannon asking for a room. You know, the reaction was very different from what someone would have had if they just walked in there and said, uh, here's a few, you know, here's a few local currencies, you know, can I please get a room as such? And, and likewise, because he had a plasma cannon everywhere he went, it didn't take much to want to use it. You know, yeah. there was a, a minor a minor scuffle outside the bar. Okay, I shoot with my plasma cannon. Um, you know, the, the fact is that not every piece of equipment is 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 applicable in every single situation. And as a GM, I think you want to basically try and show your players that uh, it's all well and good to want to have as much gear as possible. But you know, you've got have a base of operations somewhere you can put this stuff. Yeah, and only bring along what is conceivably useful. You know, I mean, at the time, yeah, I, I think that's what I'm going to 
have to say as well. You know, there's nothing to stop from just collecting everything they want. You know, they want to take that hideously corrupted demonic tone with them. Fine, but you know, if they choose to carry that with them, that's something they're carrying which weighs. Yes. So unless they're a space mean, weight allowance will become an issue. And you know, really, just if they want to take everything with them all the time, they're not going to be able to move very much. That's it. You know, and that, that man reaper is not going to be very good for, you know, for hiding away into the Imperium to you know, create a cult from within as such. Exactly. You yes. know, so a base of operations in some way to keep the stuff. And remember that if it's a base of operations, they can't take the base of operations with them, yeah. even if it is a ship, yep. because they still then have to go up in a shuttle to the ship to get whatever it is that they need. And the more juicy stuff they have hiding in the base of operations, the greater chance people find out about it or try and raid it. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but that said, there are ways around it in Black Crusade as well. So, you know, they may well decide to take four minor followers who are all porters who essentially carry the character's stuff for them. Yeah. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. You see it in the artwork all the time. Some some little peasant dude... Or a, cher- with, a cherub carrying a bolter. That sort of carrying stuff, yeah. a bolter or carrying a book or something like that. It, happens all the time and it, it fits you know it's thematic it fits let them do it um yeah but you, you, you know maintenance is going to be one of the issues weight is going to be the other issue and keeping subtle yeah if they choose to will become a big issue as well yeah that's it mate. I mean if they do get this really this really awesome gear give them opportunities to actually use it as oh, well yeah, you know outright combat missions where having the biggest gun is going to be beneficial to them then they get to use it and then they will happily put it away when the mission doesn't actually require yeah. that that's my suggestion anyway okay so second question from Facebook comes from Toby and Toby has said he is running a uh, I believe it's a Death Watch campaign and they're having a hard time differentiating the personalities of the marines everyone's basically playing their marines like they are knights of the round table you know they, they want some way to actually some advice on how to make each marine feel like a, a truly different personality are they all the same chapter uh, I didn't say in the email as such okay. but I mean I mean that, that, that that's obviously one of the first bits of advice is that every single chapter has its own styles prejudices yeah. a, you know. a good way is to have a look at you know the, the curse of the of the chapter yes and even if they're not suffering from that yet, it should give you an idea of roughly what's the, the character's tendency towards. It's not always the case, but generally speaking, you know, dark angels tend to be a bit broody. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, space, space wolves are gregarious. Yeah. You know, um, you know, the stereotypes exist for a reason. That's it. I mean, consider the fact that space marines were not always space marines. They, they were picked from a very young age. Yeah. But they are still people who had, you know, youths and different life experiences and, you know, like anybody else, they have different drives and different different wants and needs and such. When they, the, the, the good thing about Space Marines is that when it comes to, when push comes to shove and they're in combat, they can unite as one unit. But when it comes to non-combat time, they go back to their standard personality. So they have they have their own ways of doing things. Um, the, the best advice I can give you is, is pick up some of the, you know, the audio books or the, the novels as such. I can really recommend the very first audiobook of the Horus Heresy series, which is Horus Rising, I believe. Um, anyway, um, and you'll see that just like, you look at the interactions there between characters like Garviel Loken and Tarek Torgadin, and you'll see that they are, they're very different personalities. And one is stoic, pragmatic, um, dedicated, and the other is jovial, um, you know, uh, 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 loose, you know, just 
Happy Go Lucky as such, but they're both from the same chapter, you know, raised at the same time. They are just two different people. Yeah. Different people have different personalities as such, you know. And, and even then, I mean, you're generally fine in most role-playing games, you know, the player character's personality will impose itself on their player, on their PC to some degree anyway. Yeah, yeah. So... Um- yeah, this is something which can come up, though, is essentially people getting their idea that they want to play the Vulcan. Yes. You know, where, where they all try to play the same sort of character. Yeah. And the same sort of personality. And there's not really a lot you can do about it, unfortunately. If a group of players all decide, yeah, we're all going to play, you know, for Mage, for example, we're playing a group of men in black, we're all going to play as emotionless, soulless men in black. Not really a lot you can do if that's what they've decided no. to play. But but space marines they get a lot of implants, but they don't get their personality removed at the no, same time. They don't. No. They, they still have they still have backgrounds and such. You know, they still have things that they they like and desire and, and want to achieve as such. And, and and if you really want to drag it out, have flashback scenes. Have something from one of the characters past come into the game. That's true. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a good way of forcing some personality out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ask characters things like. Um, how do they feel about being in the Death Watch? Yeah. You know, how do they feel about being in the Jericho Reach? You know, maybe maybe they were in the middle of some major crusade for their for their chapter when they were suddenly drawn out to come to the Death Watch and there's some resentment there as such about the Death yeah, Watch. Yeah, you know, right. maybe, maybe this is a great honour. Maybe this is a punishment. In some cases, Death Watch is a punishment for some people as well. Yeah. You know, um, how do they feel about their own chapter? Maybe they enjoy the Death Watch even more now. You know, maybe there was some conflict that they've left behind because of coming here that they fear going back to. Uh, maybe they don't get on so well with one of their one of their new battle brothers or such. You know, yeah. ask themselves, pers- ask some personal questions about how their character would think about certain things. I guess that's probably the way to go. You can find things online on all over the place where you've got sort of in character questionnaires you can use to help build character personality. Yeah, you know, where the GM just asks the player characters a whole bunch of different questions about their, you know, what's your favorite blah that sort of stuff. Or yeah, what's you, your... you're better off just asking a bunch of questions that you, you're genuinely interested in. And... Maybe not all of them are going to be pertinent to what you're going to be running, but maybe answers that they give that you go, oh, that's particularly interesting, you might decide to draw right. into your game later on. That's right, Marines get 15 minutes free time a day. What, what, do you, what does your character do for their 15 minutes free time a day? Yeah. <laughs> does he do one of the other things which he normally does? <laughs> that's it. So hopefully that helps anyway. Yep. So anyway, but we appreciate the comments and the questions. If you do want to contact us, you can do through through a number of ways. Our website is www.grim.podcast.com. Of our Facebook page at facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash plus sign grimdartpodcast. We have a Twitter at grimdartpodcast. Our email address is show at grimdartpodcast.com. And don't forget, just like uh, we had done before by, by Douglas, there is the um, voicemail link on the right-hand side of our website. You yep. can click there and leave us a voicemail link. Maybe because we got to our 50th episode, maybe leave us some nice messages for... Knocking over 50 shows, we'll play next episode as well. It's a, it's a bit of a milestone for us. I mean, we'll do our best to, to catch up again after our short hiatus, thanks to my um, my mutations. Yeah. Uh, also, don't forget our link through Drive Through RPG. It's on the website. You can go there to buy your PDF books and support the show at the same time. Uh, so, coming up, episode 50, Big Five Zero. It's the only war episode. Uh, we're talking about the only war psychic system because we're also talking about the sanctioned psyker as a career. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do a review of Salvaging Solace. And we're still working out what our final conversation will be, but it'll be ready for the next episode. So looking forward to hitting a big milestone. And uh, thank you, Mike, for your patience in getting today organized as well. No worries. And we will see you again soon. Yep.
This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc. All other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibio's Music Alley, music.mibio.com. 